0: Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. I clipped this story uh, this week, and, and this is also something I don't do too often, uh, read you clippings, but um, it's, it's just a phenomenal story, and how it ties into the message is just great. It, it's about these firefighters who responded to the call of a burning building that was, of course, on fire upon arrival. Uh, They saw that there was a girl trapped on the 10th floor, but they couldn't reach her because of the very, very narrow streets. The ladder truck couldn't reach the girl. So the firefighters set up a net for the girl to jump into down below. Now, this is 10 stories. That's pretty scary. And they pleaded with her to jump into the net, doing their absolute best to assure her that they would indeed catch her. But there was a problem. This girl was blind and couldn't see the net and she couldn't see the firefighters and she, she, she couldn't bring herself to trust the pleas and the assurances of the firefighters but just then the girl's father showed up and she gra- he grabbed the bullhorn and he called out to his daughter to jump into the net and then the girl leapt from the window and landed safely in the firefighter's net throughout the girl's life she had trusted the sound of her father's voice to guide her where she could not see and when she heard her father's voice, she knew that she could trust him because he had faithfully guided her so many other times. This story really ties into our sermon today as we learn that trusting God is a part of taking, taking a hold of the promises that God has for us. We need to learn to trust him. And this story, it, it, it supports the message a little bit, but it's also um, a little different as well. For example, we, we know we must trust in God. We have to take our father at his word. The girl jumped immediately. As soon as her father called out, He, she knew she could trust him. We need to learn to take our father at his word, especially when we hear things from our father that we may not like, right? That's when we really start negotiating with God. Uh, Are you sure, God, I, I can't have this or I can't do that? Are you sure? Um, so that's one thing. And also... Uh, when we look at this story, the girl was at literally t- literally taking a blind leap. Now, for us, whenever we cast our cares on God, whenever we put our full trust in God, we are never taking a blind leap. Now, we may not know exactly where God is leading us in this situation in a certain situation, but we know that God is faithful, and we know because there 's an entire book, an entire book written about his faithfulness. Many of you have experienced firsthand god 's faithfulness. And even the Israelites, as we talked today, had experienced God's faithfulness. It's not a blind leap to trust God. It's an act of faith. And what he has done in the past gives us the confidence to trust what he will do in the future. Amen. All right. Everybody awake. Good, because we're going to get into one of the greatest stories, I think, in the Old Testament, the sending out of the spies in the Canaan. For all of our military guys, you're really going to appreciate this, right? There is actually a ton of military exploits in the Old Testament, but we're getting into some of the first ones uh, this week. What's, let me just kind of frame this for us today as we uh, get into the text. Uh, Moses, as we read in 13, verse 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses. So the Lord is directing Moses to send men to spy out the land of Can- Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From every tribe of their fathers you shall send a man and uh, everyone a chief among them. So we know where there's 12 spies being sent out. So we have the first recon mission um, uh, in, in history here. We're seeing that they're being sent out. Uh, to spy out the land. Now the Lord had already said that he is bringing them to a land. They they left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea and now they find themselves right at the precipice of, of taking what the Lord has promised them in their slavery. After they have seen all the things, remember all the signs and wonders God did. God first delivered them through the plagues. He brought them out through the Passover. Then they leave Egypt. They're, as they're leaving Egypt and, and, and fleeing, really, with all of the possessions that the Egyptians had given them, weighed down by gold and things and animals, some 500,000 or more, 500,000 men, right? So we're talking about a lot of people moving through the desert. They come to the Red Sea. They feel trapped. and Pharaoh's closing in behind them as he is realized that releasing all of these slaves was a huge mistake, so he starts chasing the Israelites. God, in a pillar of fire and a cloud by day and a fire by night, opens up the Red Sea, and the Israelites cross through the Red Sea as though on dry ground. And as the the Egyptians pursue them, they come into the middle of the Red Sea, and God causes the water to wash over them and destroy the armies of Pharaoh in Egypt. They get through on the other side, and they forget it all about all that, don't they? They start grumbling against God. This is where they start, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry. They want, and God gives them manna, and he gives them quail, and he makes water come from the rock. God is continually moving, and then God gives them instructions to build the tabernacle, and his presence rests on the tabernacle. These people have experienced God in, in, in more profoundly than many of us ever will. They've just seen the absolute presence of God. God, has anybody ever parted a creek? Has God ever parted a creek for you, Uh, let alone the Red Sea, right? I mean, now God has done some miraculous things in our lives and perhaps yours, and maybe you've seen God move in a mighty way, but that doesn't keep us sometimes from grumbling. And so now they come to the promised land. God says, go and see what I've prepared for you, go and see. And so 12 spies go out among them, are Joshua and Caleb, the other spies, and they go to look and see what this promised land really is. And once they see the promised land, they see that it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's well watered. It's, it's great for living in. It's, it's perfect, except there's people there. There's people there. So we skip down to verse 30 in Numbers 13, and we read the report of the spies. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land... Through which we have gone to spy out is a land that is that devours its inhabitants, and the the people that we saw in it are of great height. And then in thirty-three it says that we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So they bring Caleb and Joshua like, let's do this, right? let's do this. But the other 10 are like, no, the land is full of giants. Giants. Now this is hyperbole, okay? Because the Nephilim were destroyed in the flood. There are no Nephilim anymore. And so they're just exaggerating. They're, they're like, they were like giants. They are trying to put fear in the people. And so they bring a bad report uh, to the rest of Israel and they start sowing these seeds of discord. Now God had already promised to give it to them. I mean, where it was... Ki- was the report true? Were there a lot of people? Was it a powerful land? It's certainly, it may be true. But Caleb and Joshua had faith that God had brought them this far. He had already destroyed Pharaoh's army. God was going to do it. He was going to make it happen. All they had to do was go and take it. But the others didn't believe that. They were consumed with what was, what they saw before them. They were focused on the problem, not God's solution. Did you hear me? They were focused on the problem, not God's solution. See, God had promised Israel the land of Canaan. and we know that whatever God promises, he will do. Not maybe do, he will do. If God makes a promise, you can count on one thing, he's going to keep it. He's going to keep his promise. This is the hope of the church. Jesus said, one day I will come back for you. We can count on that. Jesus has not left us as orphans, but he will come back. When God says something, he will do it. And he promised them the land of Canaan. And Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, God promises this. Yes, there's going to be some obstacles, but we're going to do it. We're going to do it. God had already demonstrated all his power to make good on his promises in Egypt. And how quickly people forget. <coughs> Excuse me. They forget the promises of God when they come up against it again and again and again. Obstacle after obstacle. We forget what God has already done. Church, I want to just be transparent with you. This this affects all of us. This affects, affects me. It affects you When we come up against things that seem insurmountable, we get so focused on the obstacle in front of us, we forget about our great big God who is able to do anything. The God who spoke the universe into existence is certainly able to help us overcome any obstacle that is before us. Say amen. Please say amen. I don't want to sound like an order or something. However, Israel's possession of the promised land was contingent upon their faithfulness. See, at times, God places opposition in our lives that we cannot handle. Anybody ever heard, God will never give you more than you can handle? It's a lie. Just let you know, it's a lie. Now, if you have that hanging up in your house somewhere or something, I'm sorry. You don't have to go burn it or anything. But, you know, that idea that God never gives us more than we can handle is a deception, God oftentimes gives us more than we can handle to teach us to depend on him, right? Maybe he gives us more than we can handle on our own, but he never gives us more than we can handle with him, right? That is true. That is true. Through him, we can do all things, all right? This doesn't mean we can conjure up whatever we want. What it means is whatever obstacle God puts in front of us, we can overcome with his help, amen? God can help us to overcome those things. And at times, not only... Does he allow them? I think at times, God, we see, engineers them. It is God who sent the spies into the land, right? He could have just said, march up and take it and skip the whole step of sending up the spies. But here, God is saying, if they will be faithful. Will they be faithful after they bring the report? Well, we're going to find out, all right? There are victories that the Lord has for us, that must not be taken by force, but by faith. There are things that the Lord has for us, and I have seen people, and myself included, have come up across things, and the victory was right there. The victory can be right there, and but again, we're looking at the problem, and instead of claiming the victory that God has for us, we turn away, and we're defeated. But there are things that God has for us that we must reach out, and not take by force, by force of will, I mean, but take by faith, things that God has promised for us. So skip with me now to uh, chapter 14. And we look at the rebellion of God's people. Verse 1 says this, All of the congregation raised a loud, loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, in a very dramatic fashion, I'm sure. What that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Verse 3, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Lord, have mercy. Verse 4, and they said to one another, let us choose a leader let us, I underline this in my text, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And the Lord had promised Israel this land. He had promised it to them. They lacked the faith to take it. And now they're, dis, they're in utter despair. They just have lost all hope. My wife had been working on me to watch a movie for about, well, we've been married 23 years. So 22 years, she's wanted me to watch this movie with her called Anne of Green Gables. I think we talked we talked about it at dinner, actually, a couple nights ago. And uh, I was like, nah, you know, it just looks, no, you know. And 22 years, man. And uh, she bears with all the Marvel movies, all the Star Wars movies, all the Lord of the Rings movies, all the cop comedies. She deals with it, all of it, right? I said, okay, fine. So I pop the popcorn. We sit down to watch it. I want to tell you, it's a really good movie. <laughs> it's really good. And I like to tell you, I didn't cry, but I can't because I'm not a liar. It's a really, really good movie. It's it's a great movie with redemptive qualities about faith, about adoption. It's a great story of adoption and uh, how horrific adoption and you know, uh, being an orphan was actually around the turn of the century. Just a great story. But in this story, uh, Anne, with an E, is actually very given, uh, really given to dramatic uh, entrances and speech. And she's talking to her adoptive mother, Marilla, and she's just like, "Ah, I am beyond despair. I am without hope. And Marilla says to her, to despair, is to turn our back on God. And instantly, as soon as that quote came up in that movie, I mean, something in my heart was tripped and triggered. I was like, that is so true. To despair is to turn our back on God. Here is Israel in despair. Israel, whom God has chosen as his own people, is despairing. Do you see how stupid and foolish that is? Now, put it together. We are God's people. We are his chosen people, his royal priesthood on the earth. How dare we ever despair? Amen. How can we despair? To despair is to say, God's not big enough to help me. God isn't in control. God is, is, an un- is unaware of my situation. To despair is literally to turn our back on God. That's so true. And so if you if you only watch the movie for that, watch it for that. All right, but now you're like, well, I already got it. So, okay, whatever. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. <laughs> it's a good movie, though. And this idea where we just we just lose hope. I mean, really a Christian has no business losing hope. We have no business despairing. That doesn't mean we don't get depressed. It doesn't mean we don't have ups and downs. It doesn't mean that sometimes we're not looking for the answers and praying, but it's when we stop praying, it's when we stop trusting, it's when we stop leaning that we are in despair. If you're going through something today, if you're facing a wall of opposition, my encouragement to you is pray. Pray. Don't turn your back on God because your situation is not hopeless. Amen. Your situation is not hopeless. You are not in despair. The God of the universe is on your side. Amen. And then Israel, I also underline this. I already told you. They said, let us choose for ourselves a new leader. This was not just a rejection of Moses, a rebellion against Moses, but of God himself who has placed Moses in the place of leadership among Israel. Now, there's a little lesson for the church here. One thing I I, I reluctantly say I hate, I don't hate it, but I, I don't like it, is the way we pick pastors, right, in churches today. What's Maybe some of you have been through a pastoral change in a church, right, and you stuck through it. You didn't leave when the pastor left. You stuck through the process, and you've seen how kind of uncomfortable it is for everyone. Because in a lot of churches what happens, unless you're a Methodist or a Catholic where they appoint a priest or pastor, if you are in a congregational church, then the deacon board or the pastoral search committee looks through about 500 resumes of pastors looking for jobs. They weed down a few and then they interview a couple and then they finally invite somebody to come preach. And then that pastor, he comes and preaches. And uh, if he does a good job and everybody likes the way him and his family look, they vote. They vote and they say, yeah, you're our new pastor. Can you imagine if Israel was allowed to do this, imagine the first time they were hungry, they would have voted for somebody new. And here they are saying, hey, let's vote for somebody who's going to do what we want, not where God's leading. Let's, uh, let's, let's have somebody that's going to lead us where we want to go, not necessarily where God's leading. Church, this is a fundamental problem with the way we, we do things at, in, in a church. Is there a solution for it? I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, it's the best way we can do it, but you can see the problem here, right? They would have definitely voted Moses out. And so if you are ever part of a pastoral change, if you ever are in a church that's going through a pastoral change, when it comes time to vote, I pray, I hope that you have spent significant time in prayer over your decision and asking God to lead your church into a, into a position where you're picking his leader for the church, even though he may be leading you Somewhere that is uncomfortable for you to go or she right that, that even if it's difficult that God God's person who's leading that congregation is going to go where God wants them to go and that you not reject God's leadership uh, through that process because God has got the right person and that's just put that away. Store it. Don't vote me out. All right. Just keep that uh, stored away somewhere. When you're part of a church going through transition and and uh, uh, you know you're going through that process. But what happens in a lot of churches when a pastor starts leading a congregation where they don't want to go, they stop. They stop being uh, um, cooperative. Is the word. So church members stop giving. That's the first thing they try to do. They try to starve the pastor out. That's the first thing, right? The next thing they do is they grumble, and they talk amongst each other, and they make little coalitions of of, of the unwilling, and they, they get together, and, and they start, you know, forming little subcommittees about the pastor's leadership or the leadership of the church, not doing what they ought to do. Now, remember, just back a little while ago, Moses set up 72 people to help him deal with disputes and problems. This wasn't absentee leadership. This was not a dictatorship. Maybe it was a theocracy where God is leading through people, but this was not a situation where people were not being listened to. There there was opportunity, but instead they start grumbling amongst one another and they start plotting to overthrow Moses. Make no mistake about it, this was not rebellion simply against the person, but against God himself. Church, this rings true today as well. That We need to be very, very careful when we're um, um, unhappy with church leadership. We need to first go to the person to Uh, that we have a problem with. We need to give the pastor, the leader, the benefit of the doubt. We need to talk with them. We then need to maybe talk, if they're unresponsive to the pastor, with some board members in attendance and then see what happens. And then if all else fails, you don't lead a rebellion. There's a million churches to go to, especially in the United States, right? It's the board's responsibility to remove people, those in leadership. That was really had nothing to do with the rest of the sermon. That was all for free, okay? And you might think, well, this doesn't affect me, but maybe one day you'll remember this part of it, right? One truth about sin is it always, always uh, affects others, whether it's directly or indirectly, you know? And our society is very tolerant of sin that they think does not affect other people, right? Sin that doesn't have direct effect on other people is tolerated. I think about pornography, you know, in some countries prostitution. To think that prostitution doesn't hurt anyone or it doesn't, you know, is is no, no consequence to anybody but the person who's participating in it is ignorant and foolish, right? To think that a male, a married man with a few kids uh, who has a pornography problem is only sinning against God and it doesn't affect anybody else, is ignorant and foolish. Our sin affects other people. Now, we always, always sin against God when we rebel against Him. We always sin against God, but our sin also affects many times other people, right? Very, I can't even think of one sin that has no effect on anyone else, right? It does. And even our secret sin, those things that we do and we don't talk about at parties, those things affect other people around us. They always affect other people. And we see sin is like a cancer. Sin is like a cancer that spreads through the body of Christ, spreads through God's people. It is important that churches and congregations exercise church discipline right? That that sin not be allowed, um, open sin be allowed to exist in the church body. It's, it's really important, right? That that we deal with it on a case-by-case basis, but that mature people take that person aside and talk with them privately and try to restore them. The goal is always restoration. But a church that refuses to discipline will be infected by sin because we're all sinners, And sometimes that sin weasels its way in, and it affects the entire body, and it must be cut out. Maybe not permanently, right? We're not talking about excommunication indefinitely. We're talking about the expulsion of sin until restoration is made. Then they can come back. Church discipline is an important part of of running a church. It's the most uncomfortable part. It's the most unpleasant part, but it's also very, very necessary because sin always affects other people. And here it is spreading throughout this entire people. Even though two brought back a good report, they chose to believe the 10 and then rebelled and said, actually, they threatened to kill Moses. They threatened to kill him. But there's good news, church. In Christ, our rebel heart is transformed into a heart submitted to his lordship. How many of you know this is true? You, you became a Christian, you gave your heart to Jesus, and all of a sudden you wanted things you didn't want before and the things you wanted before you don't want anymore. Does that make sense? And like The things that, that I was doing before I came to know Jesus Christ, I had lost my appetite for. Right. Once I became a Christian... Now, I didn't have an appetite for those that those rebellious, sinful things anymore. I had an appetite for Christ. I mean, and I, I understand not everybody responds the same way, but I mean I was a freak about it, right? I mean, I sold my television. I sold, I, I got rid of every distraction so I could devote myself 100 percent to studying God's word and 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 prayer and and getting to know Jesus. I wanted everything I could possibly get from Jesus. I wanted everything that experience had to offer. I wanted to learn everything. I grew up in a non-Christian home. I had a lot of homework to do. Amen. And so I was studying God's word and just pouring myself into it. Now that was a season of my life. I mean, I do own a television today, but in that initial season of my life, all the things that I had chased after in the first 22 years of my life went away. I mean, crazy. And I, I no longer wanted those things. I wanted more of Jesus. Now that is what transformation is. Right? It's not one day you decide Jesus lived and that Jesus is the son of God. It's a transformational experience. Jesus described it in John 3:16 as what? Being born again. Being born again. Think about that. That's a transformational experience. That's not a decision. That's not just like, oh, I'm going to church now. That is God got a hold of my heart and he changed me from the inside out. Amen. There's looks of confusion on some people's faces. And I understand that because we have churches full of people who have never experienced that. And that's a problem. That's a problem. If you have never experienced that, it's a problem. It may mean, not always, but it may mean you're not a Christian. Now, I'm not here to judge you, and I'm not pointing fingers at any individual person, but if you have not, under, you have not experienced the transformational power of Jesus Christ, I want to tell you, you need to take a hard look at your faith. You need to take a hard look at your relationship with Jesus, because it may be that you're not a Christian. Nowhere in the Bible do we ever see a testimony of somebody who just said, yeah, I'm going to start going to church now, right? We're, we look at people who are transformed by the power of God, We see people who were blind, now they see, and they follow Jesus for the rest of their life. We see people who are knocked off their high horse on the way to Damascus, and Jesus appears to them, and they completely turn their life around, right? It's transformational, and this is a problem, because when we, in our own effort, just try to do the right thing over and over and over again, it exhausts us, and we leave the church, and we leave the faith. But that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to a transformational experience where we change. We no longer want those things in the world. We want more of Christ. We're not trying to walk as close as we can to the sin of the world and, and take everything we can without really violating Scripture. No, we're trying to walk as close to God as we possibly can. And so we're, that, let me tell you, makes us walk very far away from the things that the world tells us we need, right? They just, I mean, the two have nothing in common, the, the, the world or the sinful world and the kingdom of God have nothing in common as far as priorities and uh, morality. That's, it's so crazy in our world today that, that politicians and uh, Gillette razor company, uh, you know, with their whole manhood thing, what it means to be. That Everybody wants to tell us what morality is outside of Scripture. Everybody wants to, you know, get their two cents on what it means to be a man, what it means to be, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, moral, and 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 what is moral. I mean, I think Nancy Pelosi, a, a politician in the United States, said uh, to to um, not allow abortion is immoral. That that's crazy. It's crazy talk. We go where do we go for our morality? The Bible, the Bible. Period. That's where we find the source. Of our morality. Chasing another rabbit. I'm sorry about that. Numbers 14, verse 30. Go with me there. Verse 30. No one shall come to the land that I swore I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of some guy, and Joshua, son of none. Verse 31. But your little ones who you said would become a prey. Remember they said that our children will become a prey. God says in verse 31, I will bring them in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Verse 32, but as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness. Forty years and suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you have spied out the land, 40 days a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. Verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in the wilderness. They shall come to the full end. There they shall die. God is not happy with Israel's rebellion. Some people might say, you know, I get this question a lot. Why did they have to walk around in the desert 40 years? This is why. Because they were right there. They were right there. Get it. They were right where God wanted them to be. They were just on the other side. Just there. In a day, they could have been there. But instead, they believed the bad report. They were intimidated by their situation. Instead of taking possession of what God had promised, they had to walk around for 40 years until they were all dead. Only their children would take possession of the land. Church, how many of you can identify with this? You you think back in, in your youth, and you think, if I would have only done that, I could have saved myself all of this trouble. I could have saved myself all of this heartache if I would have just done it this way. I think back to my days before Christ. I think about all the time and money I wasted. I think about all the things that I did wrong and how my life could have been different if I was just a Christian from birth. (laughs) And I mean really following the Lord. Teenagers, I know some of you have to be dragged on Sunday. But I want to tell you, if you would just follow the Lord, determining in your heart to follow the Lord from your youth, you will skip so much heartache, maybe that your parents went through, that I went through, Because the Lord, like we sang earlier, desires his best for you. He doesn't desire to punish you or withhold on you. He desires the best for you. And here he desires the best for his people, but instead they do whatever they want. They rebel against God and they never see the promised land. They came out of Egypt and they died in the desert. See, the primary focus of our lives is to glorify God. If there's any mistake about that, if in, in any other sermon or any other message you've heard from this pulpit has ever led you to believe that your life is about anything other than glorifying God, I apologize. That is your sole purpose for being. B- believe it or not, it's not to make 06. It's not to make E9. It's not to, be, to make sure that your son or daughter is the absolute best athlete they can ever be in ever. Right? Your job, your whole job, your whole life is to bring glory to God. To God, to glorify Him in everything you do. It means putting him first in everything you do. Israel focused on their own ability. They focused on what they could do, and of course, they could never beat the possessors of that land uh, in their own. And so they on their own, so they focused on the problem instead. They lost sight of the living God who had led them out of Egypt. When we sin, again, we always sin against God, but we, always, uh, we may also be sinning against others. Remember that other people are watching you. Your kids are watching you, especially your kids are watching you. Here we see in, this, in other parts of the text, we see that the children are caused to suffer, right? They also have to walk in the desert for 40 years, Some of you may think, well, that seems pretty harsh. They're all dying in the desert. they are dead bodies everywhere in the desert. Well, you know, that seems kind of harsh. God is 100% justified in punishing rebellion and sin. He is 100% justified in punishing rebellion and sin. In first Timothy it says this, this this saying is trustworthy and deserving of our full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, Paul, am the foremost. Jesus came to save us from our sin. Last week we learned about substitutionary atonement. We deserve the punishment. He took it. He took it for us. We all fall short, we all sin, we all rebel. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the lesson from Numbers? Number one, I encourage you to go back and read it. Do the devotion this week. Get your mind wrapped around what God is doing here and leading his people to the promised land. But I would say that we also need to remember that in Christ, in Christ, God has promised to save us where we fall short. And we know when God makes a promise, he keeps it. He keeps it. He has promised to save us where we fall short. Christians should respond to God's patience with repentance. Excuse me, with an urgency to share the gospel with the world. That's what how Christians should respond with God's patience. You think, well, why doesn't God punish like this anymore? Why doesn't God just come back? Why doesn't Jesus just come back right now? What? Why? Because He is patient. He is patient, and how we respond to that is very important. If you're if you don't know Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, how should you respond? You should respond with repentance and faith. You should turn away from your sin and put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ who has promised to save you from your sin. You cannot save yourself. One day we will all stand before the righteous judge. One day we will be judged according to what we have done. Now you can stand up there before the righteous judge on your own. You can just make a case. Well, God, I was pretty good. I was pretty good. I I did more good than bad. There's a whole bunch of this world that is counting on that. I, I was more good than I was bad, God. And I want to tell you that in his perfection, your sin is going to be so much more amplified. And you're going to understand that there's no way that God can give you eternal life. There's no way that he can just look past your sin. If he was, he wouldn't be just. If he did that, he wouldn't be just. But Christians will stand before God with Jesus as their defense. We will be covered in the righteousness that is in Christ and we will be welcomed in. We will hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. If you don't know Jesus today, turn to him in repentance and faith, accepting his promise. As Christians, we should have an urgency to preach the gospel. You hear me talk about it all the time. Why? Because I'm, it's important to me. It's important to me. I believe it's important to the church. We don't have unlimited amount of days left. Jesus has promised to come back. This this freaks a lot of people out. People start shifting in their seats, working those glutes a little bit. I want to tell you, Jesus is coming back and there's nothing stopping him from coming back right now, right? So there should be an urgency upon us to share the gospel, to make Christ known with the days that we have left, to make Jesus known. It's not just we few, it's that he has commissioned the church to be his body, his hands, his feet to the world and make him known. That's how we should respond. No matter what today, you should respond. Every time you come to church and you hear a message, you should respond. Every time you go to a Bible study and you hear the word of God taught upon, you should respond respond. In one way or another. Today, if you're not a Christian, you have a chance to respond. You will respond. To do nothing is to say no, right? Or just say no. To receive the grace that's offered to you through Jesus Christ is to say yes. You have a chance to respond. But make no mistake, doing nothing is still a response, a negative one. Church, you also have an opportunity to respond. You've heard a lot of sermons about preaching the gospel. You've heard a lot of sermons about being a witness in the world. Respond to that invitation and live your life on purpose to bring glory to God. That is our reason for being. It's not a blind leap, it's an act of faith and trust in God to respond. Amen. Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.